This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All righty. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, wait. I got to mute you guys. I'm sorry. I hear something from the Mechatonas at Bosnia. Let's mute everybody here. I'm sorry. Okay. I think you're all muted now. Let's try that again. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome back. I hope you had a wonderful Purim. We are now in the season of pre-Pesach. Before I uh, move any further, I want to say thank you. I want to thank all of you for coming out here today, for being here, for being part of this. Please give yourselves a very, very warm and enthusiastic round of applause. There we go. Okay, you know, I always say, when you get a round of applause, take it, because it may be the only one you get all day. And then I also want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshiva Betzihuda and Partners Detroit, because they're amazing, and they set up this beautiful lunch and learn, they take care of all of our physical needs. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime, it's an app, it's in a website, and it's filled with amazing, amazing Torah content, hundreds of thousands of hours of beautiful ideas and beautiful messages, may we all... Merit to go on down there, download, listen to, rinse, wash, repeat, download, listen to, rinse, wash, repeat, and come out bigger and better Yidin than we went in. Alrighty, so we now have four weeks between now and Pesach, and we're going to try to cover a lot, but we're going to cover the, we're going to cover the Seder for the next three weeks, God willing. This week I want to cover an important topic. We are literally slipping here from Purim, which just yesterday was Shushan Purim, my brother's birthday, by the way. Uh, Shushan Purim is, was yesterday, Purim was the day before, and now we're heading off towards Pesach, and Pesach is coming up in less than a month. So we want to understand, what is the is, is there a connection between Purim and Pesach? On one hand, one might think that Pesach is in the beginning of the Jewish year, because the Jewish year starts at Nisan. The months start with Nisan. Nisan, Ir, Sivan, Tammuz. So Nisan is the beginning. Pesach is in the beginning of the year. Purim is at the end of the year, right? You start off the year all enthusiastic. We start, <laughs> we start off the year with drinking, and we end the year with drinking. We start off the year with Pesach. We're drinking four cups of wine at the Seder. We end up the year with Purim, we're drinking Adeloyada at the Purim Suda, right? We're drinking more than we should at the Purim Suda. So there you can say, the Jewish calendar starts with drinking, ends with drinking, or you can do whatever, Pesach's the beginning, Purim's the end. Is there a connection? They happen to be 30 days apart. But are they connected? Could be yeah, could be no. And if there is a connection, what is the nature of this connection? Today I'm going to posit that there is a connection. But I'm not going to pause it based on my own ideas. I'm going to give you a little bit of a little bit of proof, hopefully, to back it up, and then we are going to try to understand what that connection is, what the nature of the connection is, and what that tells us about the next coming 28, 27 days. Okay, here we go. The Gemara in Tractate Megillah discusses the following topic. What happens when there's a leap year? Now in Judaism, a leap year is not an extra day. It's not February 29. It's an extra month. It's Adar 2. So you got Adar 1, Adar 2. Okay? The question though is, when do you celebrate Purim? Do you celebrate Purim in the first one or the second one? I see I've got a very learned crowd. You guys have some lived experience as well. Baruch Hashem. You guys all know it's the second one. But what's so obvious and simple to you was not so obvious and simple to the rabbis in the Talmudic era. They debated and discussed this. Now, one might be tempted to say, but they debated and discussed everything. That is true. <laughs> that is the Talmudic way. We don't take anything for granted. As should you not. The Jewish way is not just believe whatever you want. No, it's fight, argue, discuss, debate, and then come to a decision. That's the one important thing. You can, all, you can, you can have all the, the debate and all the discussion as long as you come to a decision at the end and live your life by the decision. 
Some people just say, I don't know. I'm not really confident that there's a God out there, so in the meantime, I'm going to do nothing. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. That's not how it works. You're not sure if God is there? You're not sure if He exists? Do as much discovery, debate, discussion as you need, and then you make a decision and you absolutely live by that decision for the rest of your life. So, the Gemara at that time, many rabbis said it should be the first Adar. For two reasons. Number one, it's always the first Adar that comes right after Teves, after Shvat, I'm sorry. So it should be like every year. Every year, as soon as Shvat is over, you flow into Adar, and that should be the month that it is. And furthermore, ladies and gentlemen, we have a rule when it comes to mitzvos, zrizim makdimim le mitzvos. We always want to do mitzvos at the earliest possible time. Okay? So, for example, bris milas are almost always in the morning. Why? Because as soon as the day breaks, that's when you're allowed to do a bris. I'm not going to wait till 4 or 5 o'clock. Do it right away. Get it out of the way. We want to do a mitzvah as soon as possible in the morning, right? Um, so, zrizim makdimim le mitzvah. So, if Purim could fall out in the first month or the second month, it would make sense to say you should celebrate it in the first month, because we have two opportunities, do the earlier one. The other opinion the Gemara says was to do it in the second one. Why? The second Adar is always closer to Nisan. So you've got Adar 1, Adar 2, and then the month of Nisan. And there's something about the character of Purim that it should be close to Nisan. How does the Gemara rule, like you all well know, on Daf Vav Ahmed Bey's Tractate Megillah, page 6b. Amar Rav Tevi, Rav Tevi said, Taima de Rav Shimon ben Gamliel, the reason of Rav Shimon ben Gamliel, who says that you always celebrate Purim in the second month of Adar, is Mismach Geula Legeula Adif. We want to make the redemption of Purim and the redemption of Pesach next to each other. So if I celebrated Pesach in Adar 1, it would be 60 days until Passover. There would be 60 days of time elapsing between the redemption of Purim and the redemption of Pesach. We don't want that. We want to be so mech geula le geula. We want to make redemptions contiguous with each other. We want them to be as close as possible. And therefore, Rabbi Shimon Megamliel said you should celebrate Purim in the second month of Adar. And indeed, how do we rule? Like Rabbi Shimon Megamliel. Because we did feel that it was crucial and important that we celebrate one Adar next to the other one. That is one proof indicating that Purim and Pesach are connected. I'll give you another example. This one's a wild one. Here we go. Big thank you to Eiser over here. Always helps me with the Coke. The Coke Zeros. Okay, here we go. This may have zero calories in it, which means it doesn't give you much physical sustenance. Once you make a bruch on it, this Coke Zero lasts forever. You're like, Rabbi, if you know what kind of chemicals they're putting in the Coke Zero, it lasts forever in your body. You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Amen. Hmm. Now, for all of you who are wondering, but Rabbi, aren't you supposed to hold the food in your right hand when you make a blessing? The answer is yes, except for that I'm a lefty. Did you know that? Yeah, you're ideally supposed to hold the food in your right hand that you're making a blessing on to give it chashivas, to give it importance. But I'm a lefty, so I hold it in my left hand. I make kiddush on Friday night holding the cup with my left hand. If you're, there we go. Abdullah too? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It gets wild. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, here's the next one. There's a famous statement about Adar. And it's sung many thousands of times over by Yeshiva Buchers as they go around collecting. When Adar comes in, we increase our joy. So the entire month of Adar is filled with joy. 
Now, for maybe a different year, you would wonder, the first 13 days of Adar, the Jews were terrified. They still didn't know how it was all going to work out. Only on the 13th day of Adar were they successfully able to vanquish their enemies and celebrate it on the 14th. So why are we so happy from the beginning of Adar? That's a different question for a different time, maybe a different year. But the statement in the, in the Gemara, and it's a Gemara in Tainus, Chaf Tes Amud Aleph, Tractate Tainus, page 29a, it says, When Adar begins, we increase our joy. Okay, so if you forgot to do it until now, by the way, please dial up your happiness by at least 30%. Alrighty, just saying, if you didn't get there yet. Now, Rashi, the primary commentator on the Talmud, he says something very interesting. Why should you increase your happiness in the month of Adar? Rashi says, Yemei nisim hayu Yisrael, because the month of Adar are days of miracles for the Jewish people, Purim Upesach. Purim and Pesach. Now, Rashi is saying over here something very strange. The Talmud says, oh, you should be happier in the month of Adar. And Rashi says, why? Because there are days of miracles, Purim and Pesach. Pesach is not in the month of Adar. It's in the month of Nisan. So what is, what is he saying? Clearly Rashi is saying over here, there's more of a connection between Purim and Pesach than meets the eye. What is the nature of this connection? Hopefully we're going to get to it today. Now, I want to tell you, in my notes, I have two different stories that I could tell you to illustrate this. One of them is my own. The other one is a story that I heard in a class from Rabbi Zachariah Wallerstein of Blessed Memory. Now, when I was going through my notes, I'm like, I'm going to do my own. I like my own. But then I said, wait, no. We're still in the first year after Zachariah Wallerstein passed away. He was a giant of a man. He was a businessman who also dedicated his life to Jewish people in general and, and a lot of the women's programming for people who were... I mean, he had a heart for everybody. He worked with people who were victims of abuse. He worked with people who were struggling with alcohol and substances. He, was, he worked with every, I mean, everybody. He was an unbelievable human being. He was a huge uh, Ben Torah, too. He spoke prolifically. He was a real inspiration to many people. And he passed away at a very young age this past year. So I said, this year I'm going to tell over the mushal, the story I'm about to tell you. I'm going to use Rabbi Wallerstein's story and not mine. And it should be a zechus for his neshama and shemayim. Obviously in shemayim right now, he's in, in a very, very, very high place because he dedicated himself so deeply to the Jewish people. But this should give him even a little bit of a boost as well. There is a... a president of the United States of America... And we're going to go back like a hundred years, okay, to back when there was a real respect for the office. Okay? There was a president of the United States of America who is dealing with a lot of troubles with the, uh, we'll call it the, the English government. The English government didn't like to let go so nicely. They came back, they fought us in 1812. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to make it up even further. We're going to say that there was another war. There was no civil... Around the, the 1840s, we'll call it. There's another... There's, the, the, the drum beats of war are drumming again. This is fiction. So there was no war between America and Britain in the 1840s. But let's imagine there was the drum beats of war were drumming. And the Americans are preparing for the inevitable third war with the British. We beat them once, we beat them twice. But... You know, they say, strike three and you're out, and they were not out yet. And it's a very, very difficult time for America. There's British warships circling the coast. British-approved pirates. I don't know if you know how this worked, by the way. Back in the day, you could be a, a pirate in the name of, of, of a king. So basically, if you wanted to work as a, a pirate, you could say, I'll be a Spanish pirate, and I'll attack British ships. Or I'll be a British pirate and I'll attack Spanish ships. 
You weren't called a pirate, you were called a privateer. You ever heard of that? <laughs> a privateer, right? So, this is the reality, this is the truth. So, there were British ships and British approved privateers running up and down the American coast attacking, sometimes even making landfall, attacking weak positions. We can't figure out what's going on. How do... How are the British getting all this information? They're trying to figure out who's the Benedict Arnold. Who's the traitor who's supplying the British with information? And they set up an elaborate investigation. And the dragnet's getting tighter and tighter. And then finally they discover it's unthinkable. This spy who's been giving information to the enemy, compromising United States interests, is none other than the First Lady. The First Lady. How could it be? Dr. James Polk. (laughs) No, so it's the First Lady. Now, we know that in America, there's one thing that's a federal capital crime. What is that? Treason. Treason. And the American public is outraged. And even the president himself, he's so angry. And he's so, he feels so deeply betrayed that they decide that they're going to, they're going to execute her. And, uh, you know, first he comes to visit her in, in, in the cell that she's in. And she's like, listen, she's like, my great-grandparents, they were earls in England. It's so embarrassing what you guys did to America on the global stage. I'm not, I'm not, even, she's not, even, she's not even repentant. And he says, you know you're going to die. They're going to hang you. And she says, fine, let it be. Finally, it's the day of the execution. And as you can imagine, the whole, the whole world is aware of this. Even with the, back in the 1840s, the, the internet connection was not so fast. It was dial-up in those days. Do you remember? <laughs> but the whole world is aware of this, what's going on. There's write-ups in the papers about it. And the president has decided that's it. Like, you know, he's, he's going to have to... It's, he's, he's, he's the president of the country. She was betraying the country. Comes the day of the execution. And it's a mostly private affair. There's a few attorneys general who are there to witness. There is a few journalists. And it's the morning of, and there's the president, somber... And his dark, you know, black clothing. He's already, I mean, it's a sense of mourning. She was his wife. They, they, they loved each other. And it's very, very painful for him to see him, you know, to see his wife be executed. And then as she mounts the, gall- the gallows, she cries out and she says to her husband, it's like Benjamin, Benjamin. Please, please forgive me. I, I, I can't believe what I did. It's not about whether I lose my life or not. I loved you. I love you still. And what I did was not just a betrayal to America. It was a betrayal to you. And I, I, can't, I can't go to my death. Whether you pardon me or not, it doesn't make a difference. I just want you to know. I love you and I always will love you. And, and thank you for all the time you've given us. I, I appreciate you so much. And the president, he can't hold back anymore. He yells out from the box, I pardon her! I pardon her! Okay? He pardoned her. Do you think he's bringing her to the next uh, presidential ball? Is he going to have her sitting in the audience at the next State of the Union address? Now, for those of you who are astute observers of American history, you'd say, but there was no State of the Union address in the 1840s. 
Thank God. <laughs> anyway, is he going to bring her around when the, when the new ambassador from Norway comes to the presidential dinner? No. He pardoned her, but he's not exactly ready to bring her back into his fold. He still feels deeply betrayed. But there is a process. There's a process that she can go through where she literally opens up her Rolodex and she starts telling all the secrets. Not because she wants to save her life. She's already been saved. But because she recognizes that what she did was so wrong and she really recognizes that she loves her husband. She loves America. She doesn't want these fake British imperialistic forces. And then maybe, maybe, if she shows the deepest levels of sincerity, maybe one day he'll be able to walk out with her at his side again. Proud to have her. Proud to be her husband. Purim. We were married to God. We got married to God at Mount Sinai. He held the mountain over us like a chuppah. We said, I do. When they, we were offered this special relationship, Moses came down. And on behalf of God, he said, do you want to be a special, unique kingdom of ministers and holy people and my special treasure amongst the nations? Do you want to be my beloved? And we said, Nasev and Ishma, we're in. And God betrothed us to him with the Torah, with the ring around our hand, so to speak, metaphorically. God gave us the most precious thing in the world, his own Torah. And he gave it to us. And what do we do? We, were, we betrayed his trust. Within 40 days we were serving a golden calf, and then we repented, and then we went into Israel, and God begged us when we went into Israel. God said, when you go into Israel, do not make treaties with all the nations of the land, because if you let them live amongst you, you're going to end up following them. It's, it's too hard to have the smartphone and not download the TikTok. <laughs> Hashem said, please don't do it. And we did it. We made treaties with the nations. We let them stay in the land. And they kept serving their idols. And we said, oh, those, those look kind of attractive. I like those idols. And we served idols. And once we served idols, that allowed us, once you start having a new religion, then you have new things that you can do. See, if you're following the Torah Judaism, there's a lot of things that you can't do. But the minute you say, oh, no, 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 but I'm not... People say to me, it's like, I say, you're, you're going to order a... You know, a BLT, a bacon, lettuce, and tomatoes. And they say, oh, but I'm this kind of Jew. It's okay for me. You know, they, they, they say a different group that says that kosher is not important, you know? I'm like, I don't think there's two Torahs. But when we create new religions, we had a whole new list, a whole new menu of things to do. My daughter was going away for Shabbos. Um, my second daughter, she's, she's going away. She's probably at the airport right now. Probably boarding her flight shortly. She's going away for Shabbos. She's a wonderful, good, very, very good girl. So I was joking around. I said to her, I said, listen, when you go, please, just, just don't do anything I wouldn't do. She says, Daddy, that opens up a lot of options for me. <laughs> you know, when you start serving different idols, you have a whole new menu of options. Different foods you can eat, different activities you can do, all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says... The reason why the Jews served idols was not because they believed that some fish-shaped statue has power or some three-headed elephant statue has power. It's because they wanted to do different immoral activities and they didn't have the license to do it under Judaism. But no, 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 I serve this one. It's okay for me. So God said... Don't have other idol-worshipping people in your neighborhoods in the land of Israel because you're going to see them. You're going to go to the mall with them. Oh, they can, there's all these options in the mall. I didn't realize I can buy this and I can do this and I can do that. Oh, but you can't if you're a Jew. Okay, so let me. I'm going to do what they do. 
Be'asakein got money. I'll do what they do. That's exactly what happened in the first temple. They, they had the idols all over the land. They had all these different nations living amongst them. And they kept falling and doing their, serving their gods and doing all their activities, their immoral activities. And God warned them for hundreds of years with the, the Nevi'im, the prophets. But no, they kept doing it. And then God said, I'm going to kick you out of my house. And then he did. He kicked us out of, out of his house. And we were in exile in Babylonia. We were sold as slaves. And yet even there, even there, we still kept following the cultures around us. Finally, God says, this is treason of the highest order. They're done. They went even to a, a, a party that Achishverosh made to celebrate the downfall of the Jewish people, the end of the era. Right? Because there was a prophecy that in 70 years, the Jews would come back, and the 70 years passed by, and the Jews didn't go back. So Achishverosh's big party in the beginning of the Megillah was really a closing out the Jewish chapter. They're still around, they're still alive, but their time in the sun is over. Their 15 minutes of fame is gone. And the Jews went to this party too. That's okay, I'm done with them. It's treason of the highest order. And a decree comes out, we're done. They're going to kill every single Jew. It's truly going to be. You went to a party to celebrate the end of an era, it's going to be the end of an era. You went to a party to celebrate that the Jewish people's time in the sun has come and gone. You'll see what it means when the Jewish people's time in the sun has come and gone. You'll be gone. And then Esther says, go gather all the Jews together and get into the synagogues and cry out to God and fast and pray for three days. We're all going to do this too. And an incredible miracle happens. God says, boom, you're going to be saved. And indeed, the Jews are saved. Does that mean telling the Jews are the best of the best? Not quite. Where is God's name in the Megillah? Zero. Zero. Nowhere. It's almost like he's embarrassed to be seen with us. He saved us! Because we cried out at the last minute, right before the execution. We cried out, and he said, okay, I'll save you. But I don't want to be really be seen with you necessarily, just yet. It will be a dark redemption not a light redemption. That's what Purim is. Pesach, however, is a light redemption. Pesach says, God is showing the whole world that you will know, B'ni Bechori Yisrael, my firstborn child is the Jewish people. That's what the, the, the message that Moses was told to deliver to Pharaoh at the beginning of the Exodus Miraculous story. Go tell Pharaoh, my firstborn child is Israel. I'm proud of who they are. I'm going to save them. I'm going to take them out, not in the middle of the night, in the darkness, behind the scenes. No, no, no. In the middle of the day, God's going to take us out of Egypt. All the light, all the glory, all the splendor, all the miracles... God's fingerprint is everywhere. Not just his fingerprint. No, no. In the Megillah, it's his fingerprint. He leaves a trace. But you don't see him. But when it comes to the story of Pesach, it's all him. God said, I'm going to do this. God said, I'm going to do that. Moshe keeps coming and saying, this is what I'm going to do. And he keeps delivering. Yeah. Didn't they do a Vodazara in the time? They did. But that is not as bad as going to a party? That was not... The, so the Jewish people... Once they, got, once they already got married to God, they have much more responsibility to Him. So there's a very good question over here. The question is, didn't they serve Avodah Zarah in Egypt? Okay? And, and here they went to a party. The answer is, once you get married to somebody, betrayal is a lot worse. Then it becomes a capital crime. The fact that they were in Egypt, and some of them served Avodah Zarah, was not held against them as much because of the hundreds of years of subjugation and the way the whole thing was done. They had never yet accepted the Torah yet, right? They hadn't gotten married to God yet. So people, when they're teenagers, they mess up, right? I'm saying we have a little bit more of an understanding. We have a little bit more of a leeway for them. 
once you get married, it's like that's it. You are you're locked in. This is this is real now. There's no more no more betrayals. No more you know. So that's I think an idea there. So, ladies and gentlemen, Purim, we got out. But it wasn't a, a redemption of light. It's a redemption of darkness. God is hidden. He leaves his fingerprint, but he's not making firecracker miracles. Pesach is a redemption of light. God has firecracker miracles all over the place. If you want to get to the place of a Pesach redemption we got to clean out our Rolodex. Got to get rid of all those numbers. Drop your bookie. Drop your drug dealer. Throw all those numbers out. I know. You don't have a drug dealer. You don't have a bookie. But you have his number. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the process of of going from Purim to Pesach, going from a, a redemption that is dark to a redemption of, that is light, involves cleaning out your house, which ironically is exactly what we're required to do. What is the avoda of the next month? What is the job of the next month? Physically, we're cleaning out the house. But that's because spiritually, it's saying the same way that the, the president's wife has to spend time Literally going through her Rolodex, going through all of her sources and her contacts and all the people she's passed information to and getting rid of all that and exposing it and getting it out. If you want a really clean house, we got to clean it all out. What does that look? For starters, it's very interesting. There's four parshas. There are four, it's called the Dalad Parshios. There's four special parshas that we read on Shabbos. An extra, we take out an extra Sefer Torah and we read a little portion by the Maftir. We do it for four weeks out of the year, these special parshas. Two of them before Purim, two of them after Purim. What are the two after Purim? This week in Mitzvah Shem, we will read Parshas Para, which talks about the Para Duma, this uh, special miraculous water that would come from a red heifer that would be a cleansing water that would be sprinkled on anybody who became spiritually contaminated to make them pure. And then we will have the last of the four parshas will be Parshas HaChodesh, which will be the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which I believe is the, the, the two weeks are one after another this year, right? Sometimes there's a week in between them. I believe this year they're back to back. HaChodesh talks about the idea of the new moon, which of course is telling us that the job after Purim is remove spiritual impurities, which is Parshas Para, and then become a new person, Parshas HaChodesh. And then, of course, we have the ability to take the carbon Pesach. So let's talk a little bit about what this chametz is, because we're going to be starting in the process of cleaning for chametz. Some people are looking at me like, starting the process? I started four months ago. What are you talking about? My whole house is turned over already. I got a little kitchen in the basement, you know, whatever, you know? <laughs> Some, no jokes, I spoke to somebody who literally said to me that they've already had their whole house, their whole, their whole house is clean from Pesach, except for a kitchen in the basement. I don't know what, like, what, what do you, what's the purpose? But whatever, I'm not asking any questions. Mine is not to question. Okay, so what is this thing about the chametz? Let's look at the Gemara and Brachos, Daf, Yud, Zion, Amad, Aleph. The tractate Brachos, page 17a. Rabbi Alexandri Basar Dematsli Amar Hachi. Rabbi Alexandri, after his prayer, there's a portion. When we say the, Sh- the Shmon Esrei, here's how it works. There's 19 blessings. It's called Shmon Esrei, which means 18, but they, they added a 19th one later. If you need a particular thing, you want to daven for it at the prayer that speaks of this thing. For example, if you need a Refuah Shalema, if you need a recovery, a medical recovery for you or somebody you know. There is a bracha in Shmona Esrei that talks about having refa'enu Hashem Heal us Hashem and help us be healed. Then you would be the appropriate time to insert a prayer for any people who are sick that you want to daven for. If, for example, you're going through a tough financial time, there's a bracha for that. It's called Barech Bless us Hashem. Bless this year and all of its 
Tvua Sala Tova, and all of its uh, crops, whether the crops are agricultural crops or financial crops, whatever you're harvesting. Hopefully not tax loss harvesting, but, uh, <laughs> but you hope, hopefully you're, you're, whatever you're harvesting, right? So you have to make a, there's a bracha for that. If the person's going through financial straits and difficulties, so that would be the appropriate time to put in a special blessing to God. And again, you, you want to think it, because you, you, you'd stop before the end. You say, Baruch Aleinu Hashem Alkeinu. Es Hashan Hazos, Vez Kol Menei Svo Salat Tavav. Esein Talmud Tavav Racha Alpanei Adamav, Vesabenu Tavecho. Uvarech Shana Seinu Kashanim Atavos. There's a pause right there before the Baruch Ata Hashem. Uvarech Hashanim. You would stop there for a moment or two and think, Hashem, please, I got credit card bills, I got mortgage payments, I got my daughter going to seminary, I got, you know, uh, Jewish school tu- tuition, I, I got all kinds of situations. Please, God, send cash in large quantities, okay? Large bills, uh, crisp, preferred, but I'll take any. <laughs> if a person has a big test, they're taking the MCATs, they're taking the LSATs, right? There's a bracha for that. You Hashem, graciously give people wisdom. You teach people understanding. You get up to there before you make a baruch You stop and you say, Hashem, I've got this big test coming up. Please, Hashem, help me. Or if God forbid, you start feeling your memory is slipping. Daven Hashem to help you with the memory. Where was I? Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's say, for example, you just need Mashiach. You just need Mashiach because you're sick and tired of being in Gullus. You're sick and tired of being in exile. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You just, Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of brachas for that. Hashivenu avinu, v'lirushalayim ircha, esemach david. There's many blessings that are asking for the return, for the Mashiach to come, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt with the final temple, and for the Davidic reign to be restored. Now, what if you want to pray for something that's not mentioned in any of the blessings? So there's Shema Koleinu. There's a blessing. Hear our voice. Shema Koleinu, Hashem Elkeinu, Chuzvarachem Aleinu, have compassion on us. That's a catch-all. That's the last of the section of blessings for uh, specific requests. And the sages say, there you can put anything you want. Accept with compassion and goodwill our prayer. Because you hear the prayer of the Jewish people with compassion. Before you say, Before you say that bracha, you can pause and you could think of anything that you need that was not mentioned. Because there's definitely not a bracha, if you noticed, for lottery tickets, right? And I'm sure we've all prayed. If we have a lottery ticket in our pocket, we're definitely praying. We have deals also. It's not just prayers. When you have a lottery ticket in your pocket, it's not just prayers, it's deals. If I win, I'll give this. It's like you got a whole kind of calculation. Deals to make with God. God's like, you want deals? That's a different guy. Prayers, just prayers. Deals are deals. It's separate things. Anyway... The bottom line is, at the end of all of our prayers, before we step back, okay, we say, Then we can step back the three step, steps back. That is a point where you can physically verbalize anything you want. So during the blessings, if you need certain things, you can think them. You're not supposed to verbalize them ideally, except for if there's an actual blessing made for that thing, like for a refuah or something like that. So... There's a, uh, right then, you can then verbalize. Before you step your steps back, right then you can say whatever you want. What would Rabbi, Rabbi Alexander, he had his own little prayer that he composed. And we know about it because it was written down in the Gemara. Rabbi Alexandri, Basar Dematsli Amar Hachi. Rabbi Alexandri, after he davened, would say the following Master of the Universe. It's so well known before you. What do we want to do, God? All we want to do is your will. That's really all we want to do. At the end of the day, everyone wants to be a good, everyone wants to be a good person. Everyone wants to do what they're supposed to be doing. Everyone wants to be who they're supposed to be. Who's holding us back? The leaven in the bread. The leaven in the bread, which is a reference to the Yetzirah inside of us. 
just like the leaven is deep inside the bread and it makes the bread change its nature, so to the Yetzirah, the evil inclination is deep inside of us and it makes us change our nature. Veshibut Machios. And the subjugation that we have to the nations around us. The nations around us, whether spiritually oppress us, often in Jewish history physically oppress us. May it be the will before you, Hashem. Save us, save us please, Hashem, from the Yetzirah and from the nations that are subjugating us. And we should go back to do your will with a full and complete heart. That's Rabbi Alexandri's davening every day. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. So relevant. And of course, when we talk about Shibur Malchios, today we live in a time, we live in what's called the Medina Shel Chesed. We live in a time where the, America has been very kind to us and allowed us, we're not running from pogroms. But the culture around us is incredibly toxic and often very antithetical to Jewish practices. So, Hashem, we, we feel the oxidizing effect of the nations around us. So we dive into Hashem to get it out. Now, why does this Rebbe Alexandri compare the evil inclination to the dough in the bread? Sorry, to the leaven in the bread. So there's a, a couple things I want to We'll talk about two ideas. When I was 15 years old, I dropped out of high school. And in Israel, what do most good high school dropouts do? They go to work at a matzah factory. Who else is going to work at a job that is only open three months a year? You know what I'm saying? So you have dropouts, which there were plenty of. Then there are a few very, very skilled people like, for example, the bakers. The matzah baker is so skilled because he has to be able to take a pole with six matzahs on it, put it into the oven, lay them out flat, okay? And then he has to take another pole, do the same thing, and then take like a flat board and flip six matzahs. One, two, three, four, five, six, and he takes them out like a stack of pancakes. Six like that. And he can't burn them because each one of those matzahs retails for about four or five dollars. It's a very, very tough job, and you've got to be very skilled at it. If you are skilled enough at it, you could work three, four months a year and make enough money for the whole year. Kind of like, like, like uh, the people who do lobster fishing in the, off of the coast of Alaska. Very similar. A few months a year, they work it. It's a dangerous and difficult job, but if you do it right, you can make enough money to live the whole year. It pays enough. It pays enough. Yeah, they, they, make, they make good money. Baruch Hashem. So... I mean, I heard right now they've been in, the, the Chinese have created a robot that does the matzah. No, I'm kidding. God forbid. <laughs> Could you imagine the robotic matzah baker? <laughs> right? Lishem mitzvah matzah. Okay. Until then, we're still doing it by hand. So I went to work at the matzah factory. Now, in the matzah factory, they have an alarm system. Every 18 minutes, an alarm goes off. Literally, like an alarm goes off. There's like flashing, strobing lights, and there's loud noise, and everyone, the entire thing shuts, the production line shuts down. And they scrub everything. Every surface that held dough, they scrub. Okay? They send people around with water and buckets and and, 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 and paper towels. They clean everything. How do I know this? Because I did that job too. I did pretty much every unskilled job in the matzah factory possible. Of course, I settled in the water room because that's the one that takes the least amount of effort. You can always rely on me to find me in the least effort requiring place. So that's where I ended up, in the water room. The the, the flower room also doesn't require much. The flower room, there's, there's separate rooms. Because remember, once you put flour and water together, they start to leaven. That's why every 18 minutes they got to shut everything down. Because the water touches the flour. That's when they start the clock. Okay? And then you got 18 minutes before, uh-oh, 11. That's a problem. Now, so the water is kept in one room. The flour is kept in the other room. The job of the water boy and the, and the, leaven and the, and the flour boy is to measure out an extraordinarily precise amount of water. Let me just tell you how talented these guys are. There's, there's, the next job is, so 
The flour gets poured into a bowl. The water gets poured into a bowl. From there, this guy, he has these, he, he goes like this. <laughs> he goes so fast, like with his hands. And he does the initial kneading. After that, it's given over to these guys with these big, heavy metal poles who smash it and knead it and knead it. And that's incredibly hard work. I only lasted like four hours there. They're like, burn them, get out of here. Because <laughs> really, it's a hard work. You've got these big, heavy metal poles you're smashing. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's a very hard job. But the guy, the, the mixer, is incredibly, incredibly talented. So much so that he would tell me every day, based on the humidity in the air, I want 643 grams of water today. If I gave him 642, he'd be like knocking on my window. Hey, I said 643. Because he would notice the difference in one gram of water. He was so talented. So that the water room boy's job is to measure out 643 grams of water, whatever the number was for that day. The flour guy has to measure out 2.58 kilos of flour, whatever the number is. They're both not difficult jobs, because especially in the early season, you're only making three, four batches of, of, of matzah per 18-minute section. The rest of the time, you could read, read books and listen to music, which is what I did. So why did I set all in the water instead of the, uh, the flour? And of course, by the way, the water room, for some reason, they had these electric uh, scales there. And I don't know how, but like every third morning or so, I would walk into the, There was these big metal canisters that would hold the water. Every third morning or so, I'd walk in and like casually... Like touch or brush up against the metal canisters as I was walking in and get electrocuted. Like, cause like, I don't know how they couldn't figure out a way to get a scale that would not electrocute the entire room. I got electrocuted a lot. So why did I pick the water? If the flower, there was no electric- electric- electrocution going on. Very simple. You know what you come out looking like when you come out of that flower room? <laughs> exactly. You're just covered in the stuff. So it's like, I'll do the water room. Okay. So the whole entire matzo factory every 18 minutes. Shuts down, and they got to send people to scour out, make sure there's not even a little speck of dough left behind on a corner of a table. God forbid. Because it's leaven. After 18 minutes, the dough automatically starts to rise from the wild yeasts in the air. There's yeast everywhere around us, right? The, year, the air is filled with fungi and yeasts. And just from the natural yeast in the room, a dough will start to rise ever so slightly. I mean, you're talking about such a minuscule amount. You know you've made dough. The first 18 minutes, not much action going on. The first 20 minutes, it's only much later that it starts to blow up. But, but there's a little bit, a little bit of rising going on there. We can't have that. What's so bad? What's so bad? So what's the process? Why does dough rise? So it's a process. There are these little fungi that get in and they start to party, as fungi like to do. They get into your dough, and they start eating the carbohydrates. Right? They are not on the Atkins diet. They eat carbohydrates. And when they process them, they break them down, and then in the process of breaking them down, they release CO2. Now the CO2 is trapped inside the dough, so it makes a little, a little bubble, and then another bubble, another bubble, another, before you know it, you got all these bubbles. Hence, you cut your bread in half, and you see all these tiny little, like cells. It's like little cells, like little bubbles. That's the process of how dough rises. So wait a second. You're telling me that there's not really any more stuff in the dough. It just looks bigger. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. It's just filled with hot air. Exactly. That is your Yetzirah, my friends. Just hot air. Your Yetzirah is not going to sell you anything of value. He's going to make himself look really good. He's going to puff himself up. He's selling you a bag of lies. There's no more nutrition in bread than there is in matzah. I mean, it depends what you put in it, what kind of flax. You get seven grain bread, 20... They sell 21 grain bread today. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what's going on. There's a scam going on. But you can go to Walmart and buy 21 grain bread. But I'm saying... Theoretically, just straight wheat matzah and straight wheat bread, there's no more nutritional value in the bread. Of course, unless they put eggs and stuff like that. I'm saying just, just a straight, like a sourdough type of bread. But it looks so much bigger. It's puffed up on itself. It's filled with hot air. That's what our Yetzirah is. Number one, our Yetzirah is the one who tells you that you should feel like you're so important. You're so deserving of everyone's service. 
how come this person didn't give me this and how come this person didn't give me that don't they see who I am I'm so big and furthermore he's going to sell you a pack of lies he's going to make himself look like you follow me it's going to be amazing but every time I follow you I feel so empty afterwards that's the Sa'or Shaba Isa that's why Yetzirah is compared to the leaven he makes himself look big he's nobody he's absolutely arrogant Moshe was the greatest receiver of Torah ever. Bechol Beisi Avdi Nemanhu. Hashem says about Moshe, in my entire household, he's my most beloved, he's my most worth, loyal servant. What does it say about Moshe? Ba'ish Moshe Anav Ma'od Mikol Adam Asher Al Adama. The man Moses was more humble than anybody. You want God inside of you? You want God to fill you with his redemption and his light? you got to make room for him. And the only way you can make room for him is when you cut out all that puffed up ideas, all that inflated sense of self, all that they need to give me this, and he, he and God has to give me that, and how come they didn't do this for me? We have to ignore the voices that are trying to make it look like it's so amazing. If we can do that, if we can clean out all the haughtiness from our heart, if we can clean out all the entitlement from our heart, if we can recognize how we are such incredible beneficiaries of God's kindness and goodness, if we could be humble and flat, like the matzah, not puffed up at all, humble, lowly, flat, we can receive so much. And that is the real redemption of Pesach that we're looking for. The ability to receive God's light and to become the shining reflection of God in the world. May Hashem give us an incredible next few weeks of both physically cleaning our houses for Pesach, but more importantly, cleaning out our hearts of arrogance, the anger that we carry against other people is all based on our own arrogance and our own inflated sense of worth. Let's put it all away. Let's put it down. Let's not follow the alluring call of the Yetzirah who's promising you everything and never delivering. And instead, let's follow God's beautiful message of love and light and Torah and sanctity and beauty and mitzvos and experience the most incredible geula of God coming out and saying, these are my children. I want the world to know once more. I want the world to know very clearly, these are my children. And that will be the greatest Geula Mirz Hashem. We should see it soon in our days. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.